Hello, this is Kieran Desai of Shoesmiths and welcome to the podcast. It's the 19th of April 2023. Today's podcast is five ESG actions for the coming months. We'll spend probably 40, 45 minutes. I'm pleased to be joined by my fellow partner from Shoesmiths, Robert Forsyth from Ankara, a expert services business uh, consultancy firm. I have Brian Stewart and Lauren Demetriadis. And from DRD Partners, a strategic communications firm, we have Lauren Store. I was brought to the attention by Brian of a poll, Q4 last year, on ESG. And I think it was interesting, if somewhat dispiriting at one level, that some 68% of respondents either understood that their corporate uh, entity lacked an ESG plan or that they were uncertain of its existence. And I think this goes to two elements which I hope we can address today, which is the somewhat mysterious aspects of ESG and at the same time the complexity um, of ESG. With that, perhaps as a background point, can we turn, Robert, first to you uh, to talk about what we refer to as Vedanta-like litigation. Perhaps you can explain what it is and, and thinking about how that fits within the ESG space. Thank you, Kieran. So when we refer to Vedanta-like litigation, we are thinking about that the key concept is the extent to which UK courts will determine that UK parent companies owe a duty of care to claim citizens who are based abroad for alleged acts of one of their subsidiary companies. And in terms of the areas of law that that covers, or potentially covers, is employment, it's competition, regulatory, health and safety, litigation, human rights and tax issues. So it fits quite nicely into the ESG consideration and what your sort of global network and group is doing where and how you've structured those responsibilities uh, and particularly from a management perspective. Yeah, very good. I mean, that's that's really the international side of, of ESG, isn't it? And, and I think we'll come back to that that connectedness of, of ESG in a sense around the world um, in a minute. So, Lauren, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about eggs and I'll explain why in a minute, but perhaps you can start with um, greenwashing, which you, you've got some thoughts on. Yeah, I think, um, you know, to Robert's point earlier, there's obviously claims when you've broken specific laws and cases that can be brought against you for that. And I think what we're seeing at the moment is increasing regulatory scrutiny around your statements on sustainability. So where they're looking at um, reporting obligations and disclosures, but also where you might be making claims that are a bit generous. Um, so thinking about SEC enforcement on investment advisors who might be misstating how they've considered ESG within the investment process, um, disclosure issues with different companies. You've got the SCA Dear CEO letter that came out in Feb 2023, which talks about their ambitions to clamp down on asset managers on misrepresenting ESG and sustainable investing. Um, and you've got very hard action that was taken by Boffin in Germany against a prominent asset manager for inaccurately labeling their investments as sustainable. Um, and you have the CMA taking action as well. And I think what this, you know, all we can really read the tea leaves is that you need to be very careful about how you talk about your ESG initiatives. There's one thing to comply with the law. There's other things to make statements 
from a marketing perspective around your ambitions with sustainability and whether you're actually trying to do that to comply with the law is one thing, but your own you know, goals and objectives, if you can't really back that up, there might be some, some regulatory action taken against you merely for the statements that you're making around those initiatives. Yeah, yeah. And um, the reason I mentioned eggs somewhat flippantly is um, I still find it very confusing as to whether it's a free-range egg or it's a barn egg or is it chicken on holiday. And you know, even for such basic things as eggs, we seem to be confused by the vocabulary and the quote-unquote standards that are out there. So these very many other aspects that ESG is seeking to address and is is clearly going to be facing lots of complexities. And I think we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, one of the complexities that um, is hopefully going to be um, easier or more definable is coming, I know, from the EU's um, corporate sustainability um, directive, which was adopted in January this year and imposes um, quite strict reporting requirements for a lot of companies. This is within the family of the EU's non-financial uh, reporting regime. And uh, according to at least the European Commission, some um, 50,000 EU companies will be caught by the um, CSRD. And um, one of the aspects of which we'll, I think, touch upon um, later is that those corporations that are subject to the jurisdiction of the CSD, CSRD must um, report on aspects of their supply chain, so that's up and down. Um, and so, for example, a UK corporation that would normally not expect to be subject to the EU's CSRD, in practice will be, because they'll report, be reporting to their EU customer to whom they sell um, products um, for those supply chain um, issues. Now, Lauren, you were talking about the or hinting towards the investment community side of um, ESG. And I think um, I read a report not so long ago where the number was something like $50 trillion will be under so-called ESG um, assets investments. So um, it's a reminder that arguably the investment community, shall we say, uh, was the source of much that we call ESG today. Um, but it's moved very much into other spaces. And one of them is is the political space. And I wonder whether, Lawrence, you'd like to pick up that and, and just mention any other thoughts on developments that you think uh, are, are worthy of mention at the moment. Thank you. <clears throat> I think where we find ourselves sitting, we are predominantly a crisis and litigation firm. And that's what we wake up and do and advise our clients on that. And the ESG teams sit within those two practice areas. Uh, we also have a regulatory and a public affairs team. And what we've noticed, particularly over the last couple of years, is how these areas are converging at enormous pace. So whilst ESG often one has treated historically in a silo, it's actually impacting almost every aspect of businesses and their engagement with stakeholders. And that direction of travel is only accelerating. So when we look at the pressures coming, whether they are from regulators, from consumers, or from politicians, I think we, we would be, without wishing to be scaremongering, saying that it's risk on for corporates. And we also advise a lot of corporate clients. And picking their way through this with the challenge on the one hand of leaning into 
large amounts of capital that's allocated towards green investing without falling foul of many of the challenges we've talked about is difficult and requires cross input from all different aspects of the company. With respect to politics, I think uh, you know, politicians um, drive policy and the risk for companies becoming a political talisman is extremely high. And we recently hosted a uh, breakfast with some of the Labour front bench team. And if you look, for example, at gender and diversity, that's an area where we will be expecting an awful lot more. Yeah, that's very interesting, Lawrence. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 I think that might be a fair statement on the politics side across the board in many countries that uh, in Europe and, and elsewhere that, that we see. I mean, the politicians seem to be, just regardless of their colour, so to speak, um, pretty much on the, on the ESG trade. So I think that one's, that one's an interesting point. Um, if we turn now then to the next topic that I'd like to address with you today. So we've, we've talked rather high level, but if we could give some really tangible examples of um, some recent developments and, and what general counsel and others in corporations who have responsibilities for ESG should be looking to. Perhaps we can start then with with the um, you, Brian, as some something to offer. Yeah, yeah. So thank you, Kieran. Um, so in respect of some of the tangible examples, um, one of the things we've seen in the past is, is uh, strong uh, governance around ethical supply chains, and in particular around the use of things like minerals in manufacturing of things like mobile phones. Uh, but it, it, it's quite a wide scope because it's it's aviation, it's automobiles, um, any any manufactured product may well rely on the use of minerals that might be being sourced in some of these countries of dubious origin where some of the activities are are, are used as part of funding um, inappropriate um, abuse of its own citizens. Uh, many years ago, the Dodd-Frank Act came up with uh, Section 1502, uh, which was really just to get companies to be more transparent about um, what, what was in their supply chain. Um, and the big challenge for them was, and certainly with this where I came in, I'm a technologist at heart. The big challenge for them was, um, how do you place a reliance on uh, on goods coming through a very complex supply chain? And it was uh, quite a significant undertaking for, for example, a telecoms company that have got minerals in the chips, in the circuitry of their devices, where they, do, they are not the original manufacturer, for example. They might be a contract. They might outsource the manufacturing to other organizations. And the upshot being, as Lawrence said earlier, the, if you're placing a reliance on announcements to market and you're relying on announcements from third parties, you've got to be able to substantiate um, those announcements. And, and you can expect to get audited. You can expect to get tested on these things um, where you can be let down is where you've placed a reliance and there's no evidence to back it up and the data will unfortunately reveal things that you you couldn't have really known um and again in respect of conflict minerals i think the eu have recently re uh, released some regulation um and what they, they've kind of narrowed the scope so that they have a certain pinch point in the supply chain which is around smelters um and refiners and if you have an authentic list of or an approved list of smelters and refiners it becomes your obligation to understand that you know what which of your components for manufacturer have passed through those approved 
smelters, which lie outside. Um, and a big, there's a big challenge, of course, because there's a large incentive for uh, buying your goods at the cheapest price possible, and that opens you up to possibility for misrepresentation, um, where a lot of the problems would be around misrepresentation. So, um, from my from my point of view, it's a challenge for companies on the data side and on the integrity of that data, uh, where they need to be very mindful of the programs and the frameworks they put in place internally in order to to be able to produce these defensible reports and submissions to their to their market authorities yeah i mean the we were talking earlier and i think one of the lessons learned from at least the minerals um um legislation was uh authorities probably didn't enforce it in the way that was originally anticipated and and many potential issues really didn't come out of the woodwork is that's probably true. Um, a lot of uh, there was a lot of reliance placed on templates, if you like, on on authorities from regulatory bodies, so OECD, uh, GESI. A lot of organisations, their own industry bodies, were making representations and forming frameworks and best practice suggestions. Mm. Um, when the when the acts came into place, and I assume the same will happen in Europe. There there is a grace period, a leniency period where when you show faithful efforts to go and assess and and look at the current state of your organization um, and your initial submit submissions, I, I presume there's going to be some reasonableness tests to this because you can't expect every single member of a supply chain to comply or to submit their declarations. But so long as each year you're showing a reasonable good faith effort, and I think that was in the legislation that it had to be a reasonable good faith effort and you had to show um, progress through your stated ambitions to have monitoring and testing. For, um, a lot of industries lobbied against um, uh, the enforcement of the Act, so that we, there wasn't a lot of enforcement. And I think when the political climate changed in the US, when, when there was new leadership in the US, um, some of the some of the Dodd Frank was repealed and taken off the statute books. I think it was taken off the statute books. Yeah, yeah. There certainly wasn't the enforcement regime. We probably haven't seen that in Europe yet, where a lot of the enforcement is being delegated to each country. Mm. And I, I think I'll leave it to others on mm. the legal side to talk about uh, the jurisdictional side of whether uh, a, a UK company is responsible for the actions of its subsidiaries. Mm. It's a, a legal question I shouldn't have blown mm. Um, but yeah, they, it, it has changed, but I mean, the, the conflict mineral side draws an interesting parallel with, parallel with ESG. So it's predominantly on the, the S and the G side of it. And I think it, it acts as a reasonably good template to see what's going to happen and to see what the practical obligations are on some of the companies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, one of the uh, movements that we see coming out is that Whereas before it was to comply or explain, there's now much more emphasis on the, actually a bit more compliance and you really do have to explain coming out of it. I wonder whether, Lawrence, on, the, on that side of things with your sort of comms hat on, it's all very well saying explain, but since that's now going into a public report, that the explanation probably has to be thought through carefully. It is difficult. I mean, I think one of the things we notice is the level of scrutiny and the speed of scrutiny is catching people out 
enormously. Mm. So, for example, we worked for uh, a company that had a supply chain reaching deep into Latin America and involved livestock. Now, an activist group turning up at a farm somewhere in Latin America, taking a video, posting it to pre-mobilized animal activist groups across Europe, and it hitting mainstream press. They're really good at this. These activist groups now know exactly what they're doing, and they have causes they believe passionately in. The corporate's ability to respond to that, do we have a farm? Is that video shot at that farm? When did we last audit that farm? Did we audit it ourselves or did we send a third party? Is the third party appropriately affiliated? Have regulations changed? All of that's taking place internally, assuming you're even organized enough to be able to find that out, whilst your reputation is being shot to pieces across. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think that level of um, scrutiny and speed is extremely challenging. I think the other place that we see it is the different departments within corporates are responsible for different things mm. and they are trained to do that and that's their job so a marketing team historically have grown up to promote and sell mm. they're positive people they're looking at engagement they're looking at brand building yeah yeah um, are their statements aligned with your risk register and is your risk register up to date and has the general counsel read every wording on that website to make sure that it's verifiable yeah ricky yeah move to a listing document where we're currently working on one action with a group of shareholders um we've all worked on listings we know what the process is a prospectus gets written it goes through bankers lawyers draft one draft two revere all of it panic two years later those are scrutinized and has the company lived up to the statements that it sought to raise money against historically. Yeah. Yeah. So this joined upness, I think, really is presenting a challenge. Yeah. I mean, one one aspect of that, uh, Lauren, the sort of certification aspect, I think you had uh, some thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, commercial organizations have really d- adapted their supply chain risk management over the last, say, 10 or so years to think about worker welfare issues and environmental issues in their supply chain. Um, the practical side of that is there's a heavy reliance on certification bodies and third-party auditors to go in and certify that your suppliers you know, meet the criteria that might be established, say, by the UN or other, the OECD, for example, whatever you know, benchmark that you're auditing against. Um, however, there's a lot of debate around the efficacy and the authenticity of some of those audits. You've got, you know, audit, unfortunately, can be heavily commoditized. Um, in certain jurisdictions, it can be easy to bribe the auditor to give you a good bill of health. You've got markets where independence and conflicts of interest are not an issue to those organizations. They might be the ones advising them on their certification process and then be the, also the ones you know, doing, you know, checking their scores and being the auditor themselves. And it creates a lot of risk around how much reliance can you place on those particular audits. That's even compounded when you you think about jurisdictional issues where human rights and worker welfare is not an issue that anyone cares about. And then the government, you have authoritarian regimes where they're, you know, it's state-sponsored worker welfare problems. So yeah, if you start compounding all of that, it really draws a question mark. And it is, I think, with some of the regulation that's coming out around your reporting obligations, 
you know, general counsels and head of compliance really need to think about their approach to this and the reliance they're placing on. And they need to take a risk-based approach, I would imagine, to certain markets and whether they, they want to even operate in those markets. Can they afford the risk mm-hmm. entirely? Mm-hmm. Um, and if they're going to go down that route, then maybe they want to be a little closer to those audits rather than relying on third parties. So there's a lot for companies to consider. And I think it's not new to organizations to be thinking about this in their supply chain. Um, but if the EU regulations come in and the expectations are high uh, on, mm-hmm. on companies, which is the impression I have, um, they might need to be doing a bit more work to get comfortable. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges that we're going to see is um, something of a presumption that ESG is a big corporate problem, but once that you have to examine the supply chain, uh, medium and, and actually quite small companies who are sourcing for whatever reason from uh, abroad to make the product that then goes to the big company is going to be caught into the chain, and their ability to check that the cocoa bean from far away hasn't been farmed using guard labor or, or, or other issues is going to be super challenging. And uh, and in that sense, I mean, I was talking to a very large confectionery company um, and they were uh, referencing the challenges they're having in um, internally, if we say, uh, in relation to Norway. So Norway has actually probably the leading reporting requirements actually in the moment in the world. Um, and as you might expect, they're asking for things to be reported in relation to Norway, but also European and globally. And at the moment, the this global corporation think, well, we, we've we've got ESG, we've got this report that's produced for our shareholders in the US and other investors, and we'll we'll sort of copy paste. And the local council was saying, no, but well, firstly, it has to be in Norwegian, so there's a bit of a challenge there. And the Norwegians are interested in the bar of chocolate that's sold in Norway and what's the sugar content of that and where did that sugar come from? And then the corporations really, we've no idea because we've never had to measure this stuff. So they don't have the numbers in the first place. So that's one of the big sort of challenges. Just on the on the sort of pure legal side of things, thinking of the international aspects, um, Robert, it would be fair to say, wouldn't it, that the ability of law firms to find cases internationally and pursue them is is greater than ever and the funding that is available to law firms encourages at least claimant um focused law firms to to pick up cases and run with them whereas 20 years ago they just wouldn't have bothered it certainly would kieran we've seen a huge increase in terms of uh firms looking for class actions and looking for uh big corporations with operations abroad and then looking to bring claims in the courts here to establish liability and to access those uh, the deeper pockets of UK parent companies and to pick up on some of the comments that, that Lawrence, uh, Brian and Goran uh, made, you, you need to be really careful about what statements, representations you're making and the extent to which you are assuming either in reality or purporting to assume control for the operations of um, your subsidiaries abroad, because the the the, the more you uh, say that you are to the outside world, the, the higher the risk um, of you being deemed to owe a duty of care to those claimants and those class actions. So, in in terms of reviews of of those statements and the enforcement of um, principles and standards that you're setting, yeah, the- you need to be very careful about demarcation between parent company and subsidiaries. Um, from a from a liability perspective, and on the supply chain side, 
also really need to think about what liability um, is being passed up and down the chain um, to the extent that you can um, yeah. so that you can try and back off some of that risk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I was picking up something that um, I'd noted you, you you pointed to, Lawrence, which was the um, um, LGBT sandwich as opposed to the BLT sandwich, of course. But, um, I mean, at some point, presumably the marketing departments really do have to be thinking about what they're saying in that context with this with this ESG element, they do. I mean, I, I've worked inside one of the UK's largest retailers, and you know they're all doing their best. But mm -hmm. if you think about the practical process that actually takes place, you know, think around a household name retailer. Think about the amount of marketing material that will leave that, whether it's product description, packaging, signage in store statements about supply chain, where it's being sourced. Um, you as lawyers will be aware of the size of the in-house legal team. That material has to bluntly be walked down the corridor and put in front of the legal team, who no doubt have got many other things to do, who will ask, are we confident that these statements are accurate? I mean, they're not necessarily experts themselves. So you do see the room for slippage and equally I think the sandwich that you refer to mm. um, launched at, launched around pride, nice branding, all of that type. Yeah. And you can see that people felt this was great. Um, equally, what hadn't been calibrated was the reactions from certain groups within society and how they may or may not react. And I think one of the things that we are increasingly asking our clients to think about is you know, where are you today? Who do you touch? Mm. And how do they feel? And what are the extremes of those groups? And within each group, you have you know, extremes at either end. Not understanding the territory you're going into fully and saying, well, everyone will understand we're a progressive company, so that's fine. Well, have you understood that progressive area well enough? And I think this is where you know, the balance for a company, though, is not to go so risk on that you stop doing anything because ultimately you've got to do something. So that's the balance that we're finding lots of our clients struggling with. Yeah. You know, the, the, the want to promote and tell a great story and, you know, not be so terrified of risk that they don't do anything. Mm. I mean, it's interesting because that's, in, in a sense, the other end of the stick to, at one point, it was felt it was an optional thing and a nice and a nice to have. But I think or around this table, we probably all nod to the positive that that's becoming really um, no longer an option and, and become something of a mandatory, whether that's mandated by law or by the investment community um, or other stakeholders to whom corporations um, uh, are required uh, these days to to report. If we perhaps turn then to um, some some tangible considerations, and I wonder whether Brian, just on a um, picking up a few points where where I think you were you were thinking about um, reporting on compliance and and avoiding greenwashing and those sorts of uh, issues. Some of the some of the detailed elements that that GCs and others need to, to think about. Yeah, um, it's difficult. I've made the points. Uh, sorry if I'm repeating myself, but that um, some of the challenges are are really to do with evidencing and data, and it's it's unfortunate that. Companies have these very complex supply chains, and to 
to look at your example of the the Norwegian chocolate, for example, when how he, you know it's very difficult to assess that a piece of chocolate went through a manufacturing process and ended up in a particular chocolate bar. Um, a company has a, a terrible task trying to find well in that country we sell it as this chocolate bar and in another country we sell it as another chocolate bar. Yeah, uh, and in the minerals side, it's the same problem in the the the, the sourcing of cotton, for example, is this. The same problem. All these things get aggregated together. Um, so on the practical side, um, where I found myself working is is assisting companies understanding the data that's going to flow through its supply chain mm. and how can you uh, amalgamate this data. Um, and some of the time, you know, we would look at things that lawyers might not think of looking at, which is, well, you've made a declaration that you source from fair trade suppliers, but we're going to look into your accounts. Uh, payable systems. We're going to look at all of your vendor records, and we're going to do quantitative analysis about where some of these um, the goods that you're buying, where are they ending up in your own manufacturing process? Yeah. So that we can make a reasonable attempt to say what the what what is in your product, and mm-hmm. we can make we we can help you make that reasonable claim that you've made. You know, you have sourced mm-hmm. these goods ethically. What well, didn't blockchain wasn't that supposed to deliver somewhat on this uh, promise of of from you know farm to to plate or whatever the phrase was? It did, and to a degree, a lot of a lot of industry segments have adopted blockchain and blockchain techniques and use blockchain. Mm. Um, you're still reliant on upstream, a lot of upstream aggregation of data to flow downstream, and there is always that temptation to look for the cheapest supplier if the maths don't add up. If you've bought excessive quantities from, you know, you've got some some fair trade organizations on your books, but you've also got these other non-fair trade, yes. non-ethically sourced suppliers. At what point does the red flag get tipped? And what do you do when there is the red flag? Have you have your legal department set out compliance, set out the behaviors in the organization? Have your senior stewards of the business, have they made positive declarations about what will happen when you identify these red flags, and that's all part of uh, making sure that your 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 claims are defensible. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's the there's, sorry it's repetitive, but there are just a lot of practical problems for companies that have to amalgamate and aggregate data and place reliance on third parties. Yeah, and I think in that, in a, certainly that at Shoesmith, we sort of the view we have is you can break the these big tasks down into certain boxes and there are many actors as I think you were mentioning Lawrence that that will be involved so you can start with well what are the regulatory developments here what is this thing called the CSRD and let me interpret it and then you've got the risk assessment which is how does how does that really apply to me as in my business uh, then you've got to come up with the compliance policies and the standards which is sometimes the authorities will help you I know the European Commission is going to publish uh, quite a lot of guidance I, I think there's already six, nine draft uh, guidance issued under the ESG. Um, then you've got the uh, investigations and, and, and issues management side of business, right, which is when it sort of starts to go wrong. Uh, and then I'll, I call it some monitoring and reporting, but it's it's a, what are the metrics for success of, of those policies and, and that you've put in place. So there's, there's sort of a life cycle, if you will, of of how to address these things, touching on these various um, elements and, and requiring a heady mix of advisors at the, at the end of the day, because most corporations, I think the smaller you get, the more true this is, simply don't have the resources to 
to deal with all these all of these elements. Robert, any sort of comment on those elements that we've just touched on, in particular the sort of the I mean, if you wanted to take it from just a single element of say um, employment law and ILO, for example. I think the, the main point in terms of sort of if you're looking for an action point is to be reviewing what um, you are saying uh, in terms of your statements and uh, commitments to the wider world, marketing materials that Lawrence reference, you reference being generous, Lauren, I think, okay. overreaching on that front. Um, and in particular, then w- look, watching out for um, the extent to which the UK parent company is um, uh, saying that it will enforce and, and be responsible for um, those standards and commitments being met. So if you talked about your point about um, child labour um, uh, being used in, in various parts of the world, well, you know, if you're if you're saying that you know, that won't happen anywhere within your supply chain or organisation, then um, you need to be very very careful um, because you are giving. That's the one of the the, the the turnkeys that these 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 firms who are looking for class actions will look to hang those claims on those commitments. So the commitments that you've you know, proudly announced and and invested in in terms of of what you stand for are then to the extent you're seeking or, or saying that you will enforce them are then being used against you yeah. um, as a route in to try and establish liability for uh, child labour which you've yeah. said you know, we absolutely will not be yeah. um, uh, uh, sort of part of or, or, a, or a party to in any way yeah I mean I think I think as an action item that sounds to me like the action is don't assume yes and investigate or analyse to make sure that you understand what the position is and then you know, adjust or you know, communicate appropriately. Um, Lawrence, anything from you as sort of an action item or a summary that you'd just like to offer? I mean, I think the, the mantra is from all of us around being prepared and understanding. And from a comms perspective, there are specifics to that. You know, do you have the right team in place? Do they have the right access to senior management? Do they know how to... Um, how to behave and act when under pressure. Uh, I think I would also say that it's possible to get very defensive the whole time and ultimately actually the outside world wishes to see progress and I think you shouldn't forget that this journey is a positive journey and there are bumps in the road and therefore setting out your strategy and thinking how are we going to go about doing that and who do we need to take alongside? And one of the things that you find when under pressure is you can say whatever you like because you would. You need someone else to stand up for you. And no one stands up for you when your house is on fire. When you ring up and ask for a favor and you haven't already got that in place, everyone steps back. So actually anticipating your direction of travel, understanding the institutions you need to engage with. There are all sorts of third party NGOs who want to engage with business, who want to help, and who are prepared to to give you the benefit of the doubt. And I think that's often overlooked. So I would just say be aware of risk, but also think about how do we de-risk and move forward. Yeah, and, and, and I think what you're also saying, you know, find help. There's actually quite a lot of resources out there. There's an awful lot of, yeah. you know, government right now. Yes, you know, if you are a um, well-known ferry operator and you sack all the staff, you know, 
perversely, the parity doesn't doesn't prevent you from winning a contract in the near future um, under the current government, but that's interesting. But equally, all political parties are wanting to engage with good businesses who are helping them meet their agendas, levelling up fair pay diversity, get them on side, bring them in, show them what you're doing. Yeah. Good. Lauren? Yeah, I think just, you know, to Lawrence's point, I think the it's really, really important for companies to take a step back and think about their strategy and really understand their risks. And risk assessment across ESG is a really, it's a complex issue. The topics that are amalgamated under ESG in their own right, it's a complicated set of, of you know, initiatives, if you will. Um, and it's uh, influenced by a convoluted set of expectations, whether that's your stakeholders, um, you know, government, your consumers, etc. And I think maybe one of the things to help companies go away and think about how they assess their risk is sort of to break that down a little bit. You've got your the risk of falling afoul of specific legislation and rules, so modern slavery act, discrimination laws, etc. But then you have that softer area of reputational risks where you're really failing to meet broader societal expectations. So, you know, things like gender pay gap, lack of diversity in boards. There's no law necessarily that says anything about these issues. But if you fall on the wrong side of the issue, you're going to have people, you know, calling you out on that. And I think Lawrence gave some really great examples of that. And then you've got sort of the greenwashing where you might have broader sustainability objectives and achievements that you're trying to make that aren't really regulated at the moment. Maybe it's claiming carbon neutrality. It's making echo, echo um, claims around your you know products to sort of market them. Um, and that, you know, that greenwashing becomes a very real risk. Um, and so I think you need to sort of break those things down. Um, and you can't do the third one. You can't even think about your broader sustainability objectives and whether you're misrepresenting those if you don't have a strategy, if you don't have something in place. So I think companies really need to take a step back. And it kind of goes to that scary statistic you stated at the very beginning where, you know, 67 or 68 percent of companies actually aren't sure they have a strategy or where to find it and where to find the details of it. And I think companies really need to kind of it's easy to kind of get carried away with the positive aspects of this. Um, and everyone wants to hear success stories. Um, but if you get carried away and you haven't really thought about the risk, it can yeah. be quite problematic. Yeah. Brian, for you, I guess you're going to say data is <laughs> key. Right? I'm actually going to follow directly for what Lauren has said and, and sort of say, look, let's assume you've you've got your your, your stakeholder commitment. You, you've got a strategy in place. Um, what I would then say is, look, Make that a living strategy. Make sure you're monitoring and testing and make sure you've instituted some kind of feedback loop because you cannot get these things right all of the time and you probably can't get them right from day one. But what you can do is monitor and test your actions that you take. And when you detect in your, in your whether it's in your supply chain, then investigate and feedback into the loop. And I think it's that Bring it to, you know, you've got, assume you've got a statement of intent, bring it down to that practical level where you've got clear monitoring and you're doing your, your testing yourself. You're taking responsibility for, for what you're saying in the market. Yeah. So yeah, it does come down to data, but it's the activity of monitoring and testing and assessing yourself and having a good faithful effort to do that. Yeah. Robert, from you, I mean, it sounds that GCs are going to have to just get more and more involved in every aspect of the business and sort of intimately understand what's going on. I, I think that's right. And I think it's about um, control um, from 
the parent company and who is in control of the subsidiary operations. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if that's being managed or a UK parent company is participating in that, then you are increasing the risk of liability being established. Yeah. Should, yeah. There, be, should there be an accident. Yeah. Very good. Well, I think for my part, just nodding towards the uh, CSRD, the the first reporting year is 2025 in relation to financial year 2024. So I would suggest 2023 is when you need to sort out your metrics. So that would be the takeaway item, I think, for today. I think that's uh, about time for us. So thank you all again for your contributions. Very interesting. I'm sure there's more we can say at a later time on that subject of ESG. But for the moment, um, thank you very much. 